there are so many products out there that are all essentially the same. If you look at like the core features, you know, so if I want to put my engineer hat on and look at just the core features as these products, like I'm not going to see any major differences between the top 10 that come up on Amazon. And so what you find is the people who can navigate these ecosystems better and the people who can advertise better and market themselves better and build out other channels better are the ones who are going to succeed. And so, yes, there is product innovation. And as you get to more specialized products, like that definitely comes more into play. But the key success that I see is from people who have figured out how to navigate these ecosystems better, but then you have to continually adapt. And that's probably where you get some skeptics on the direct-to-consumer route. Like you have to be constantly changing and updating and these platforms change daily. And so you may be on top of the world for a while, but then an algorithm can change. And then all of a sudden your whole business can be upended too. And so I think the biggest thing is those who can adapt as quickly as possible are the ones who are gonna be in it for the long term. I'm really impressed by our team at Four Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm. It talks about our forward thinking and tech-focused culture. And this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces, you can sign up for our newsletter at fortcapitallp.com. I really enjoyed meeting you at Capital Camp and really interested in, in, in all that you're doing. And so I thought it would be a, a great place to start would maybe be a little bit about the early parts of your story and kind of how you started this business at Advance. Yeah, yeah. So I, I always struggle with how far to go back on this. <laughs> uh, I'll give a general overview. Like I've always been a tinkerer, just starting different businesses like when I was 12 or 13, I started my first business. Um, it was in the early days of the internet. And I had this site called joke. It was joke-city.com. And I brought in all these jokes, ran banner ads. And <laughs> actually, I, I made like two or three grand as like a 12-year-old, which was pretty cool. And then realized that you had to pay taxes and all that good <laughs> stuff. So a lot of early life lessons. And now it's kind of funny too, fast forwarding that my first job revolved around getting revenue from advertising on the internet. And now here I am managing digital ads. So I got an introduction into the Amazon ecosystem. I'm a chemical engineer by background, but started this business on the side. And I was selling these organic chemistry molecular model kits. They're used for organic chemistry courses, super cool product. And so started selling that. And as I was growing up that brand on Amazon, found about this thing where you can advertise for your products on Amazon. And this was pretty early on in the Amazon third-party selling ecosystem. So I started building out some tools for myself on advertising. And then that grew into, hey, I can probably help out some other sellers with their advertising. Fast forward now, I don't know, nine, 10 years, we've built up Ad Advance and we help e-commerce platforms both with their Amazon advertising, but now we're also starting to expand into other channels like Google and Walmart, we're really looking for businesses to help expand, grow their sales overall through ads couple things. Was there a moment as you were starting to go down the Amazon ad route where you realized you were onto something there that you were that it was worth starting a company or you had gained some type of edge? 
Yeah. Yeah. So in the very early stages, like, especially, I don't know, maybe it's just being geared as an engineer. Like you go through this initial like imposter syndrome route where it's like, okay, I feel like I'm doing, I know what I'm doing, but I've just built this up for myself. But where it really started to click is when I was helping other sellers and implementing what I consider pretty simple strategies at the time, you could see the performance bumps up really quick. And so at that point, it was like, you know, maybe we're onto something here. So in the early stages, it was that fulfillment from seeing the results that came back. And luckily with digital advertising, you have a pretty quick turnaround time. So that was kind of the key thing where it's like, you know, we might be onto something here. We should probably invest some more time into it. What were you doing at the at that time? Like, is that strategy that made it work 10, 11 years ago still the strategy today? Or at that point in time, like, what were you doing better than most? Yeah, we, we lucked out when we got into, say, like the Amazon ecosystem, because it is it was a lot simpler than it was today. But the core strategies still stay in place. So in the early days, you would start targeting a broad audience. You would figure out what works, and then you would really fine-tune your advertising as you go. For those who don't know, whenever you search on Amazon, there's sponsored ads that show up. And in the background, there's advertisers like us who are bidding on certain search terms. And then there's this auction that goes on too. So every time these ads show up, people have submitted a bid. And then based off of relevance and bid, certain ads get shown. And so the key strategies still stay in place. Now, Amazon advertising, it's the third, they're the third biggest digital advertiser in the US and their advertising platform has expanded immensely. But the still basic, the basic principles still say the same. Uh, we want to reach the people who are most interested in these products. I mean, we want to try to set the right bids and pay the right amounts where our sellers are getting shown as much as possible. And at the same time, getting a good return on that advertising spend. So principles stay the same. And is there anything about being a chemical engineer that prepares you for business? I think you're the first chemical engineer that I know that's found and run a business. Like, is there any similarities there? <laughs> so it, chemical engineer, I did go back and get my MBA. And so I, I feel like that kind of helped it. you get a good, like, you get a good problem solving ability from engineering. And then going back and getting a business degree too, it gives you a different perspective to look at the problems. But what I think really set us up well for digital advertising is it's very numbers and database and you're constantly getting feedback. And the more you can take all this information into account, the better. And so, uh, you know, especially on the digital advertising side, it's become a very complex game of analyzing numbers and being able to take those and put those into action. So that's where I think chemical engineering probably helped at just that problem solving ability. My co-founder, he's a financial guy. And so, you know, we're not your traditional marketers, but where we've really been able to set ourselves apart is being able to use that data to make really well-informed decisions. All right. So you kind of got it. You can tell it how you want to say, but when we were at Capital Camp, you kind of told me a story. I didn't forget it. And, and you got on Amazon's radar. You were this company and all of a sudden the sirens were going off at Amazon at some point in the company. Can you describe a little bit what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, we were growing up our business and starting to work with more advertisers. And I was putting out different posts on LinkedIn and 
got on Amazon's radar. They gave us a call up to join their partner network, which was pretty cool. And what we found is that as we continued to gain credibility in the space, we have a lot of people from Amazon that are reading our posts. Some of our most like avid podcast listeners are folks on Amazon, especially with the Amazon advertising team. So what, what we're always doing is we got to make sure that we know that they're listening. And so I'm always throwing in tidbits. I've got a podcast deal on things like if there's new features we're looking for, I'm always throwing that in there because I know it's going to get shared internally with the team. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of fun as you grow and gain that notoriety a bit in the space. You get on the radar quite a bit more. So it's always knowing who your audience is and realizing that it may not just be those potential clients that are out there. And what's the benefit to being on their radar? Like, what's the working relationship like with Amazon today? Yeah. Yeah. So what's been really cool with these channels is that they're constantly growing and evolving. And so we get to work with Amazon's development teams for a lot of new features that come out. And we get early access to a lot of these items because what they're looking for, Amazon's a very customer-centric organization and that cascades to outside of their e-commerce too. And so if they've got a new idea for a new feature on advertising, they'll run it by us. Or if they're looking to test some different technical items, like yeah, new bidding features rolling out, we'll get to test it first before they release it to everybody. And so what we've really found is that by building and maintaining this really solid relationship with them, they really love our feedback. And at the same time, we can roll out and test these new features for our clients before they go live. And then when they do go live, now we're ready. We've already had case studies. We've already incorporated into our software. And so I think it's a key lesson for us is that, you know, instead of just being focused on our potential clients, it's really looking at all the key stakeholders that have a huge influence in our business. And Amazon is obviously one and realizing sometimes people just look at like Amazon is this giant corporation, but every corporation is made up of individuals. And so the more relationships we can make there, the stronger we can make our bonds, the stronger we, the more we can focus on helping out each other the better. And so that's one key piece that I feel like has really helped us out and helped our clients because we get access to these new features, but we help Amazon develop these new features. For anybody that isn't familiar, like how does the bidding actually work? Yeah. Yeah. And so this was a new piece for me to getting into the Amazon advertising side in the early days. So say I always like to go, I'm located in Northern Minnesota. So we were just out camping in the Boundary Waters, which is this wilderness where you can just take canoes, no motors. And so as I was preparing for it, I'm searching for different products on Amazon. So I've got three kiddos, Sam searching for a five person tent on Amazon. So I go into the search bar, I type in five person tent. Well, if I'm advertising a tent, I could put in a search term and I could say, if anybody's searching five-person tent, I'm willing to pay a dollar if they click on my ad. And then I could have a competitor who says, you know, I'm willing to pay a dollar ten. And so anytime somebody types in that search term, Amazon will look at the bid and then they'll look at the relevancy. So say my competitor, they don't actually have a five-person tent. They only have a four-person and a six-person. Amazon may say, you know, this tent that's actually a five person is more relevant. So even though they only bid a dollar, I'm going to show that ad first. 
because they're more likely to purchase and that's going to be a better customer experience. And so it's really this combination of this bid auction that goes on in the background. And then it's also this combination that Google started where from a relevancy standpoint, is this result, is it truly going to be helpful for the searcher? So that's a key thing that we're optimizing in the background. And how many times is the bidding perpetual? It's going on 24 seven or is it once a day? Yeah, it's constantly. And, you know, and we're focusing just on Amazon's platform. But what people don't realize is that these major tech companies, they are major advertisers. And so Amazon, they're the third largest advertiser in the U.S. And not only do they have advertisements on their website, but they have them throughout the web. So if you've ever looked on something on Amazon and then suddenly you see a little ad that pops up on weather.com or your favorite news site, that's actually Amazon's display network. And another key thing is like Amazon just bought all these different content sites. So Twitch, which is a video game streaming service. They bought MGM Studios. They have Prime Video. They have Wondery, which hosts a lot of different podcasts. And so this tech company that people look at e-commerce, it's really taking, you can take all this consumer shopping preference data, find the right people. So Chris, like I could say, all right, I want to target people like Chris. And so I could find people who own commercial real estate. And then when you're browsing a new site, all right, I can show an ad that says, all right, are you looking to sell your commercial real estate? Um, and so it's using all this consumer shopping preference data and then being able to display it throughout the web, not just on Amazon. And this is how Google and other platforms like Meta work too. How does it work on the back end where if I'm on Amazon searching tents and then I bounce over to weather.com and all of a sudden I'm being offered tents, what's actually happening there? Sure. Yeah. So how it kind of works in the background is within Amazon, you're logged in under your account. So Amazon knows that you're Chris Powers. And it also knows that previously you bought X, Y, and Z. So you went out, you bought a bunch of outdoors equipment. So we know that Chris is now interested in potentially going to be going camping. Um, And so at that point, now you hop over to weather.com if you're in, say, a Chrome browser, what what they can do is say, all right, here's the IP address. This looks like Chris. I'm pretty sure it's Chris, and he's interested in Campion. And this advertiser wants to find people who are interested in Campion. Let's show this ad on a five-person tent. And so, and then there's a whole other piece that, all right, now you get sent back to Amazon. And then if you purchase, it gets counted as a conversion. And then there's whole advertising return on sales that we can calculate and lots of other stuff that happens in the background there. Okay. It's, this is a really good thing for Amazon and obviously the sellers on Amazon. If you were to flip it on its head and and you hear a lot today, like in narrative about privacy. And I think there's sites like DuckDuckGo or Brave or is there anything that worries you that like people are trying to limit the ability to track someone across the web? Sure. Yeah. So on the privacy side, like iOS 14 for Apple, that was that was one of the major shifts. And so what happened there is up to that point, tools like Facebook, they could track you across different apps. And so Facebook would try to track you everywhere. And with that, they could get a lot of information to show you better ads. 
Apple updated their iPhone, so you can't do that anymore. And so that's why you saw Meta, Facebook, really argue against that. And so there is a, there's a major concern and push for more privacy on the web. And I totally get it. There's definitely there. There's a point where there's a creepy factor, <laughs> and so you don't want to cross <laughs> that. the The counterpoint is that without that extra information the advertising that you're going to see is going to be much less relevant overall. And so now instead of seeing products that you're truly interested in, they're just going to be random ads that are going to look like the general ads that you see when you're watching a typical football game or something. And so that's the key benefit is that ideally in an ideal world, world as advertisers, we can show ads that are so valuable that you click on them and it adds value to you because you're truly interested in the less than ideal world and where marketers have really gotten beat up on is you cross that creepy threshold. <laughs> and then at that point, people are really concerned about their privacy and their data. So I definitely see both sides. The privacy restrictions, they do make it harder to show those targeted relevant ads. So it gets more challenging, but it's also one of the pieces on digital advertising. Things move really quickly, but there's a lot of opportunity out there if you're able to navigate through it. <laughs> I don't know if you can debunk this or not, or if you're at the liberty to, but it's one thing to click on something and go to the next site and see the camping tent. For folks like me, it sometimes is like I didn't even click on it. I was just talking about it at dinner and all of a sudden a <laughs> camping tent came up and there's there's like, oh, well, Alexa's listening to you or face, when you have the Facebook app open on your phone, it can hear you talking. Is any of that actually true? <laughs> so what's really happening there is there's a marketer who's doing their job really well. <laughs> and so, yeah, I highly, highly doubt that Alexa is listening to you. It's best it, it, unless it's supposed to be. If that ever came out, like all trust would be gone from the platform and every Alexa would be thrown out. So I don't believe that's happening. But at the same time, there's probably other things that you did that show that you're interested in this product ahead of time, maybe even for you like specifically thought about it. So it could be other purchases that you previously made, or, you know, maybe if you're looking on that next fishing trip coming up and you were browsing around on the web, but you didn't really think about it. Now you're about to, you just talked about it. And all of a sudden this fly fishing ad comes up. <laughs> there's probably some pieces that can indicate that, all right, you're interested in it. And so, I always joke that it's probably a marketer doing a really good job if they can predict that you're going to be interested in this before you actually say it out loud, then uh, then that's kind of cool. Are you all an outsourced ad buyer or like do teams that hire y'all, do they also have teams that are buying ads or do most companies that decide to work with y'all, are they outsourcing their ad buying to y'all? We do both. We do both. So yeah, are the majority of the folks that we work with are selling in e-commerce or selling some sort of like digital services. But we do work with say like insurers and some more traditional agency or businesses too. We also work with other people who are doing a lot more of their media buying and then we supplement it with what we're really good at. So we kind of go down both avenues on the media buying and the ad buying side. Is the benchmark for why you would be considered the best of what you do that your ads engage with the most customers for the least dollars spent? So basically, y'all are able to get to people better than other people are. Yep. Yeah, I love that. That's as like succinct as you can put it. And I, as an engineer, I like to complicate it more, but I'm, <laughs> I'm making a note of that, Chris. I love that. I have to speak in fifth grade terms. That's <laughs> how my brain works. 
what does a great client look like when you're starting with them? And what is, what's a client that you'd say, we're probably not gonna be able to help you? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's a ton of people that we do screen out just because we don't feel like it's in their best interest or a good financial fit. I would say the biggest thing, if you're looking at expanding into digital advertising and especially looking at like more like brand building or awareness type campaigns is you've got to have a product that's going to have a high lifetime value. So either it's a higher margin product or it's big purchase price, or you can get repeat uh, buyers for it. If it's just going to be a one-time buy and you don't have that great of margins, like it's really hard to get a good return on your advertising. And I've seen so many people burned where they just go into advertising. They say, we're going to build our brand and they spend a ton of money, but it's just going to the super broad audience that may not be as interested. And so what we like to do is say, okay, let's get as specific as possible and let's find the right people who are truly going to be interested. We love to start a little bit slower. And then from there, we can learn what works. And then from there, we can start to build up upon that and kind of branch out and get broader as we go. So yeah, I've just, as, as a person who sold their own products, I've just heard too many stories of people who get sold by marketing agencies for the big 100K budget. And we're going to target everyone in the US who's interested in outdoors equipment where you can start with that person who you know is going to be going on a camping trip pretty soon and start really more segmented and then work your way up. Okay. And then after somebody has kind of onboarded with you, what does that look like? Is that a, obviously that relationships build, but, but what are y'all trying to achieve from them? Is it doubling their numbers, tripling? Like what is, how do you know if y'all are doing a good job for them from where they've been? Yeah, it, it really depends on the strategy. And so we'll have digital advertisers that come in. They say, like on Amazon, it's really competitive. And so if we're working with physical products, like a 5% margin increase can be huge because margins get squeezed so much. If it's big ticket items, then what we can say is there's many times where we started from zero on the digital advertising side. And then we're looking more on a cost per acquisition basis. So for instance, like somebody is coming through and say they're looking for financial services. All right, how much are we paying per lead that's coming in? And so in each instance, it really depends on what the key goal is and what the market is. So is it a service? Let's look at cost per acquisition. And we know, you know, for everybody who fills out the leads, one out of 10 becomes a client and they're worth this versus products. It can be, all right, trying to increase my margin by 5% from my advertising, or it can be, let's try to double my sales going into prime day or Q4. And so where it really starts is what's the strategy? What are you truly trying to achieve with your ads? It can be sales, it can be margin, it can be leads. It really depends. Um, and it's totally dependent on where they're starting and where they want to go. Okay. So most of your sellers are on Amazon. Is there things they're prioritizing today that's been different over the years? Is it is it constantly reprioritizing or the same priorities pretty much the same? Yeah, it's it's been pretty constant on Amazon.com selling products where it's really changed and becoming much more of an opportunity is actually the offsite advertising. And so we're seeing a ton of great results where people are advertising off of Amazon, utilizing the shopping preferences that we can get from Amazon data. If you look at the three biggest digital advertisers, there's Facebook, there's Google, and there's Amazon. So Facebook tries to take what you do on Facebook and Instagram and say, all right, 
Chris is going to be interested in fly fishing. I'm totally making this up. I yeah. have no idea. <laughs> uh, and then for Google, now I can take your actual search results and say, all right, Chris is interested in fly fishing or not. For Amazon, it can take things that you've actually purchased. So have you purchased fly fishing gear in the past? Like that's probably going to be a much better indicator than stuff you do on Facebook. And so the power of that information lets us reach more relevant people who are interested in the fly fishing trip or like who have just completed a move and are looking for home insurance. And so there's a lot of different cases where you can use that information. And so that's where Amazon is growing quite a bit. Most people just hear Amazon and they think of the e-commerce giant, but it's really a good data generation facility too, which is why their ads are growing so quick. So what you kind of said is like on Amazon, the data is on what you've bought or what you've searched for. On uh, on Google, it's kind of what you've searched for that they can get data on you. And on Facebook, maybe it's who you're connecting with, what groups you're in, more how you're socializing around. And all those data sets might say, this person's a fly fisherman, but it's kind of layer, it's offering that data up in a different way. Yeah. And it's a little bit more disconnected from that purchase. You know, Amazon's actual purchase behavior, which is probably going to be the strongest indicator versus like what I do on Facebook is probably going to be the least disconnected or the most disconnected. Not to be predictors of the future, but is that an indicator that Amazon might dethrone Facebook one day and become the largest online digital advertiser? They're definitely striving to. If you look at growth rates, like Amazon's projected to grow like 20% year over year for digital advertising. Meta's been dropping. They've been they've been maintaining right now. And so in terms of growth rate, it used to just be Google and Facebook. Now Amazon's definitely a key player and it's gaining a lot of ground. And then there's other retailers too, like like Walmart. So Walmart now has advertising. They also have a DSP, a demand side platform where you can start to tie together retail stuff that you purchase in a Walmart store and then say, hey, this might be a good person to show these ads to. So the retailers are definitely getting into it. And it's like Walmart, Target, Kroger, all these big ones too. It's called retail media. And so a lot of these folks are seeing the opportunity in advertising and really expanding into it. So it's not just the the key tech titans. And as part of your business growth strategy to have a strategy to work with each of those companies that you just mentioned as retail media takes off? Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're just getting connected up with Walmart right now. They've been growing quite a bit and the, their team has been great to work with. Google's been another key one that we've been looking to expand to. And so there's there's a lot of opportunity out there and it's like all the clients that we're working with, they're trying to figure out, they don't want to spread them too thin on themselves too thin on focus. And so everybody starts on the Amazon side just because the volume is there. And now it's working to those other channels. And that's exactly what we're trying to do too. So let's dedicate most of our time and efforts to Amazon, but then now let's start to branch out and be able to utilize these other platforms too. I just thought of this question, but you know, you have a unique relationship with Amazon. Amazon's been one of the greatest companies to come out of this kind of generation. Is there anything that you've learned just by working with Amazon of how you run your business that you're like, we wouldn't do this if we had never watched how Amazon runs their business? Sure. One thing that I've been really impressed, especially for a big corporate 
big corporate entity like them is their continual focus on the end user. And so on the e-commerce side, it's definitely on the customer that's browsing on Amazon.com. But within their advertising team, it's who's the end user? And it's going to be advertisers like us. And so the willingness to accept feedback from people outside of the organization and the willingness to pivot and throw ideas out there. And then if we have bad feedback, like they change course really quickly. And so I've thoroughly been impressed working with a company with the scale of Amazon and how well they're able to keep their teams and initiatives small. And I think they, they have their two pizza rule and within Amazon, but that allows them to move quickly. And then it also allows them to continually be seeking feedback. So it, they could approach it like they're big Amazon. We're just an advertising agency utilizing their platform and we should be really thankful for the privilege. It really seems like they view it the other way around. And it's like, how can we give these guys the tools where, you know, then it's a win-win situation where we can grow and we grow the spend on their platform too. So I've been thoroughly impressed with that, especially with how they could approach it. So the two pizza rule is that no meetings or teams larger than who could eat two pizzas or something like that? Yeah, yep, exactly. So no, there's no, there shouldn't be a team that requires more than two pizzas at a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then from that, like, have you just seen, you know, some people might, would say, oh, well, if you're getting feedback from everybody, a lot of it's good, some of it's bad. How do they filter through feedback? Is it just being able to iterate on certain ideas or, or is there a process that you've seen that they go through or now that y'all go through in understanding how to decide what feedback to, to take action on? Yeah, I, I think it's a good, they take a good approach of gaining trust in who, to, which voice to listen to the strongest. <laughs> and so, you know, just like when you run an organization too, you're continually getting feedback, some good and some bad. And over time, you start to see people in your organization who really gain your trust a lot more, especially within certain areas of the business. And so like Matt, my co-founder, like he's this technical wizard. So if he's going to challenge me on anything that goes in the software, like I will fight him on it, but I'm usually going to lose. And yeah. I know that going into it. <laughs> and so, you know, over time you realize, you know, who's giving you the best input, maybe not for their personal specific issue, but like what's going to make the better decision as a whole. And so it's really being able to segment like who has that knowledge base that and then weighting those different opinions as they come in versus taking everything at face value. All right. I kind of want to go back to the iOS 14 change because that was just kind of a, a moment just across the internet and e-commerce that was like, okay, the rules are changing you know, and you and I've had other folks on the podcast that said like DC, DTC isn't a business strategy; it's just a marketing channel. Like you can't just build a company and your whole company exists on Facebook ads selling to customers. But it's just something I think a lot about, and you might be able to answer it from your perspective. Like these really great e-commerce businesses, obviously they have good products that their customers love. But is what makes them successful these days how they can navigate the internet and get across the internet? Like all things being equal, same companies have the same product to sell. Is the winner really who can advertise the best on the internet? Advertising is one piece of it. But what I see, and you see this all the time as you dig into Amazon, is that there are so many products out there that are all essentially the same. 
if you look at like the core features, you know, so if I want to put my engineer hat on and look at just the core features as these products, like I'm not going to see any major differences between the top 10 that come up on Amazon. And so what you find is the people who can navigate these ecosystems better and the people who can advertise better and market themselves better and build out other channels better are the ones who are going to succeed. And so, yes, there is product innovation. And as you get to more specialized products, like that definitely comes more into play. But the key success that I see is from people who have figured out how to navigate these ecosystems better, but then you have to continually adapt. And that's probably where you get some skeptics on the direct-to-consumer route. Like you have to be constantly changing and updating and these platforms change daily. And so you may be on top of the world for a while, but then an algorithm can change. And then all of a sudden your whole business can be upended too. And so I think the biggest thing is those who can adapt as quickly as possible are the ones who are going to be in it for the long term. And I've seen some players who do it so well, and they've been able to navigate through so many different changes. And there's others that maybe find a gap or a way to take advantage of you know, a certain algorithm that comes through and suddenly they're ranked number one on Google, but then that algorithm gets changed and they're... Wiped off the map. And so, yeah, I, I think a big piece is being able to navigate these different digital ecosystems, especially in a direct to consumer route. When an algorithm changes, do you all ever have a heads up on it or do you find out at the same time everybody else finds out? <laughs> Sometimes we have a heads up, other times we're working through it at the exact same time as everybody else. And so, that's where from the start, knowing that we're getting into digital advertising, we've had to structure our business to be able to adapt quickly. And so we're in the same spot as a lot of these direct-to-consumer businesses that if we can't keep up to date and adapt quickly in the digital advertising space, it moves just as fast. And so, you know, from little things like the frequency that we have all hands meetings, we meet every single week. The entire team comes together just to because things are always changing and adapting to deciding to instead of going remote and working remotely, we have the whole team based in our office here. And it just helps us to adapt quickly. Um, be, when we decided to have a tech team in-house, it's so we could put these changes in quickly and didn't have to wait for a third-party software provider to, para, to make those changes. So we've tried to structure our business to be able to adapt quickly, just knowing that that's kind of a that's table stakes at this point to stay on top in the space that we're in. Okay, I got a couple dumb questions real quick. So when iOS 14 happened, did that impact Amazon's ad business or was it more geared towards like a Facebook yeah, it was uh, more geared. So why it hit Facebook much harder than the other platforms is that the information that Facebook gets just on its social platform itself, it doesn't have as strong of indicators. So what you do on Facebook doesn't tell me as much about like what true interests you have or what you're looking to purchase. Whereas with Amazon, I'm already logged into the app and I'm making purchases within it. So it doesn't impact those audiences much. And so that's why Facebook took the biggest hit. And that's why they tried to track you everywhere else. So they could get those indicators then that advertisers could use to then find the right people to show their ads to. So that's where you saw Facebook stock take such a hit after those iOS updates and why Facebook, if I remember right, they put a full ad out and something like the New York Times, like kind of like fighting against the change and everything because it, it was a major hit to their business 
and it just impacted how they get that data a lot more than the other platforms. Were there, were there lessons learned? Obviously, the lesson of don't depend too much on Facebook, that was learned very quickly. But were there other just broad changes across the digital advertising industry that were that people are starting to adopt thinking, you know, who knows where the where our reliance is that could get pulled from us down the road, like any major changes you've seen in how sellers and companies are thinking? Yeah. So one big change is the focus on first party data. And so there's all these companies that have been collecting information on people browsing the web through items like cookies for years. And this kind of just began with like the start of the internet. This came along and without these privacy protections, there could be all of these different cookies and companies collecting information that you'd have no idea about. And so you could use that on any of these ad platforms to then try to target people with your ads. Since these privacy restrictions are coming down, it makes it much harder to do that, to track information without your consent, which I believe is a great thing. And so where that's pushing advertisers is to companies that have first-party data. So first-party data would be like Google searches when you're logged into Google. First-party data would be Amazon purchases when you're logged into Amazon. Just to be clear, advertisers can never see, like, Chris, what Chris bought. (laughs) But we can target people who are interested in certain items, and that could include you. And so they take a lot of major steps to make sure that personally identifiable information is never shown. But that first-party data, that shift, that's what's really pushed a lot of advertisers to the Amazon ecosystem or to Google, those spots where it's not just dependent on third-party trackers, which are having a harder and harder time with all these privacy updates. Okay, I'm going to... I don't even know how to ask this question. If I tell you artificial intelligence, which seems to be the flavor of the week as of late, but it is clearly going to have a big change on society... Does that impact your business uh, in a positive way, a negative way, any way at all? For sure. Okay. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And so this is a key piece and me being a nerd, I I love digging into this stuff. And then one thing that we're trying to do is just predict what's coming down, what's coming down the pipe. And so with instances like Google search, so Google is starting to include generative text results that come back when you search. And what's cool with this is you can get an answer generated really quickly and you don't even have to click into an ad. What's interesting is it's upending the search model that has been there for the last 20 years. Like, you know, for Google, it was always those 10 blue links. It was always the 10 links that showed up. And you may have had to click through three of them to get the answer you're looking for. But now what Google can do is they can take and they can squash that answer just into that top bubble. And I don't even have to go to a lot of those websites to actually get the information. And so there's an impact where web traffic could potentially go down as these results get better and better. Because if I don't have to click into any of these sites, I can just get the results at the top, then traffic's going to go down for those sites. So that can impact display advertising and the monetary compensation that's made for those people who are creating those blog posts or those news articles. It really impacts what the top of search looks like. And so the amount of ads that show up, hopefully they're more relevant, but there's probably going to be less of them. 
Amazon has also hired a team that's looking to include some chat GPT like functionality into Amazon search. So maybe they can take previous purchase behavior. And then when you type in a product, they can use that to try to find the best products that are going to match you a lot better. These all change how like the traditional search model has worked for digital advertising and just search in general. So I feel like it's going to upend a lot of the different areas that we're all used to on the digital ad space. And so this is one of the areas that we're really prepping for coming up. So like, what would be some, how, how would you counterbalance that? What, what's something that y'all might do that, you know, again, changes with the times? Yeah. So one thing we're looking at is, all right, say if in the future web traffic goes down and it's not going to go down overnight and it's going to take many, many years for the average person to really change how they use the internet and search and everything. But if web traffic goes down and you don't have to search around as long on the webs or uh, on web pages to find the content you're looking for, well, where are you spending more of your time? Well, maybe you're looking you're watching more videos online. So you've got a little bit more free time. So there's cool things like like Amazon, they bought rights to Thursday night football. So now instead of watching a football game and just having your average Bud Light commercials or Miller Light or different things like that that are targeted towards everyone, now you can show video ads that are going to be relevant just to you, Chris. And so it's really looking and seeing, all right, if traffic's going to move in these different directions and these other directions are still ad supported, how do we move with our advertisers to set ourselves up for that? So like digital streaming could be big, Um, like Twitch, which is the video game streaming. It's a great source for a lot of different folks. And so it's really looking at those next steps where it's pushing past linear TV and it's pushing past just traditional web advertising for where these advertisements going to go. Oh, another fun one. Amazon is testing within their videos where say they will have original content. They'll have a bowl sitting on the shelf behind one of the actors. You can bid to have your product in that bowl. And if you watch the video and I watch the video, we could actually see different products in that bowl. So I don't know if this potential feature is live yet, but they introduced that last year. And so like even in content placements could change based off of individual preferences. Unbelievable. So when they're buying Twitch and they're buying these rights to to shows and, and different streaming services, it's really an advertising play. Yep, exactly, exactly. And so what's been interesting, if you look at Amazon as a company, you focus on the e-commerce side. And so back in the day, it kind of confused me on like Prime Video. Say, like, okay, well, they're just trying to get another benefit for Prime users. But at the same time, now that's another spot where you can actually show ads. Same for buying MGM Studios or the same for buying Twitch. It's like they're buying a video game streaming service. Like how does that help their e-commerce? Well, it helps their e-commerce because for, through their e-commerce, now they've got all this great advertising data. And now you have another awesome place to show that those ads. And so that's where you see these big tech companies that are pulling in a bunch of content along with the other major platforms that they're known for. So when looked at just the small picture, it's like, okay, maybe that's just a benefit for prime users, but it makes a lot more sense if you take the e-commerce to the advertising data to where to actually show the ads. 
Yeah, I think the general rule with Amazon is if they bought something, it's probably not for the reason you initially think they bought it. There's been some thought. There's been some <laughs> thought put into these things. Does Netflix have their own media advertising? Yeah, so Netflix has an ad model now. I forget which supplier they're tied in with, but it's the the same model now. And so they are another, we call them supply sources or ad inventory. And so what we want to do is just combine that ad inventory, so that ad, with a person who's going to be most interested in it. And so what they do is say, hey, we can show ads. You make a bid on what you want to show. And if this person falls in with a specific audience, meaning they're, they're interested in outdoor stuff, then let's show them the ad. And so that's where you're getting all these other ad-supported platforms. They tie in kind of to the same capability overall. Okay. I'm, I, I didn't take the note, but I was on your website earlier. Help me. There's something on your website that says it's a really important feature coming. I think it was like ADP or ad display something or Amazon. Do I need to pull it up? Yeah, you know what I'm is talking it about? Amazon like DSP? I think, yep. What's important about that? What is it and what's important about it? Yeah, so DSP means demand side platform. And essentially that's the advertising system that links up the audience. So what you're interested in to where can we show this ad and how do we bid within it? So that's kind of like the module that controls and ties these different things together. So all the way from, all right, Chris is interested in this and he's on this site. Let's show him this ad and we're going to spend $5 per thousand views out on the internet. Got it. All right. I thought we'd finish it in a a little um, more just talking about your business, not necessarily... You recently sold your business to our friends at Permanent Equity. And I've, I first maybe just start with why were they the buyer? I, I would imagine there's lots of folks that could have bought you. What, what was interesting about selling to them besides that they're great people that we love to hang out with? Yeah, yeah. So I just uh, just listened to your podcast with Mark Brooks, who I get to talk with each week. And that, that was an awesome podcast, by the way. I love loved your questions and I always Appreciate love Mark's it. insights. Thank you. So Matt and I, we are co-founders of the business. So we're 50-50 owners. And as we were growing this, we were bootstrapped from the start. And so we never had outside investment. And just with the advertising model, it's always been cash flow positive. And we've just been able to reinvest a lot of our profits to continue to grow, to continue to build out the software, to continue to build out the team. And we had scaled it to a point where like, I've got three kiddos and I had all of my, all my financial worth tied up in this one asset. And we got to the point where, um, one, we were looking to take some chips off the table and two, what always scares me is what I don't know that I should know. And so there's one piece, like a lot of business owners, when they come into due diligence, um, view it as the worst thing in the world. And there's a lot of work that goes into it. I got really excited about it just because I wanted to make sure and try to uncover the things that were potentially putting us at risk that I didn't even know what to look at. You know, as a business owner, it's, there's a lot on your plate. And so we just talked about digital advertising, but you know, only a portion of my day is spent on that. And the rest is in, spent on HR and insurance and <laughs> finance and account. And, and all the different other pieces like that. And <laughs> I'm good at some things. There's a lot of other things where I've had to try to work our way along. And 
another key thing that it, it would just keep me up at night. It's like, what don't I know that is putting the business at risk? And we wanted to find a partner who could provide kind of that back office support to make sure that I wasn't going to come in and get blindsided by something I should have known about all along and upset the whole business. And so we ended up going through a broker who helped us put together the initial materials to market the business. And Permanent Equity was one of those folks who was interested in, and I got to talk to Emily on that first call. That's so cool. Okay, real quick though, you, well, well, I have some follow-ups, but you started having this idea that, look, we've built something that's worth something. I have three kids. We've never de-risked. We're all in on this. I don't know what I don't know, but I should know it. Did you then go, was your partner feeling the same way or did you have to go to your partner and have that conversation or were y'all both kind of in sync on this from the beginning? Yeah, it's been one thing that I'm very blessed about is that my partner, Matt, we will argue about the smallest, dumbest little things. (laughs) But when it comes to the key business decisions, we always seem to be in sync. Yeah, he's got a young daughter, too. We find ourselves kind of at the same stages and situations and same general goals. And so for that, we we had conversations for quite a while. And then it was just kind of like, what's the right timing? And so, yeah, we got to a point where we're both aligned and it's like, okay, now is probably the right time. Let's seek some outside investment and take some of the chips off the table. And so that's kind of how that came about. What's the cadence that you and your partner, I have have a partner, we have one formal meeting every Monday morning from nine to 11, but then we talk pretty much, I wouldn't say every day, but we chat whenever is necessary. Like what's y'all's cadence for communication? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny looking back early on, we were actually a fully remote team and Matt and I would get together like once a month in person. And it was amazing. We would have all these breakthroughs that, you know, should not have taken a month to happen. And so it was that point that really drove us to, okay, we need to get in an office together and work together in person all the time. And that was the foundation for hiring everybody in office. In terms of cadence, we we have a meeting where it's just him and I, it's every other week. We're still a pretty small team. And so we're talking every day about key items that are coming up. But in terms of structured time, it's it's really an unstructured meeting. Let's just talk about whatever is on our minds. I'll put together notes on key items that I want to cover with them. It's every other week. We'd probably do it more frequently, but what I find is that just for these key major items, we always tend to be on the same page. And we're also very open and sometimes very blunt with each other. And so we can get to the heart of not being on the same page really quickly. So if there's any other times where it doesn't feel like we're fully aligned, you can feel that. We'll step into a conference room and hash it out. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Personally for us, it's been every other week, but like the weekly time frame, that's 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 pretty cool. And so you guys do it for two hours? Yeah, we meet Monday mornings from 9 to 11. And then depending on how that ends, you kind of know if there's if there's something that was unfinished or something that needs to maybe be talked about. But kind of like you, I mean, I've been partners with my partner nine years. It's almost like you become one person. Like we're always, it's very, very rare that I'm surprised by something he says, or if we are disagreeing on something, it comes out of left field you kind of build this communication that you just have this second, this like gut that you know when it's time to communicate. And so some weeks we'll chat, we'll meet on Mondays, we won't really chat the rest of the week. And some weeks we'll meet on Mondays and we'll talk twice a day for the rest of the week. And that we just kind of feel it out. And 
you know, I'm people say like, oh, you know, you don't want to have too many meetings. Like we have one structured meeting and everything else kind of happens as it happens. And I would say, I don't know, there's just been some, like the other day I went to lunch with them on a Friday. I, we weren't supposed to go to lunch, but both our lunch lunches canceled. We said, let's go to lunch. Ended up being a four hour lunch. And it was like the best time of the year I've had with them. We actually covered a lot of ground and it was totally unexpected or uncalled for. And so I don't know. I just think that to your point, we live in the same city. We office together. We see each other every day. If we were across the country and we had to do that over Zoom and it just would have never happened. And so I'm and very- sometimes it's those unstructured meetings too that just really- For sure. Yeah, like sit down for lunch and you don't have anything else on your mind. Like that's <laughs> where it seems like a lot of the really like good ideas that maybe are a little bit more off the wall kind of come out too. Yeah. Okay. So back just really quick. So you you decided to go to market was permanent equity always the obvious choice? Or I'm assuming you talked to lots of groups, like just what was the process like? Yeah, yeah. so we went to market and we had, we got into more advanced talks with about four different individuals. And so they were not from the start, the obvious choice. What really drove us to them is the cultural aspects. It, so one key thing that we've had, like Matt and I, we both came from the corporate world and there were some things we liked, but there were a lot of other things that we didn't like. And so a key, a key rule of thumb is that like, if I'm spending so much of my time at work, I want to really enjoy who I'm working with. And so, yes, there's the valuation. Yes, there's the financials that come with it. But at the end of the day, like culturally, are we going to line up or am I going to take an investor on that I now get to work with? going forward. And we may not be aligned in how we approach different problems, how we look at the world, what key strategies are, how fast we want to move. So after talking to Emily initially, they had a lot of content that put out. So I read Brent's book and I listened to every single podcast they had recorded. And I went through their website and I found every article. (laughs) They came in town and I found one article like 2017 or 2018 where they're kind of talking a little bit negatively about Amazon. And I brought it up just just kind of for the fun (laughs) of it too. Uh, And so throughout that whole process, it was really just a gut check on, all right, I really like how these folks portray themselves. But then when you're going through and structuring a deal, you can see from their actions if it really lines up to who they say they're going to be. And you were talking with this, like in Mark, they get the exact same experience on the other side. And so what was so reassuring to me is that they match completely how they portrayed themselves to be. So whether it was through interactions with our lawyers, whether it was through the different negotiations that we had or going through due diligence, all these key pieces really lined up. And so that that's what got me really excited about working with permanent equity. Cool. So, but part of the conscious decision was you weren't looking to stop running the business. You wanted to keep moving forward. Do you know how, like, what does the future look like? Most people that sell their business, they, you know, want to check, maybe be out in a couple of years. What's it like to sell your business, but still be really enthusiastic about the future? Yeah. Yeah. So for us, like Matt and I both really enjoy what we're doing. And so we rolled a lot of equity. Permanent equity is the majority owners. So, you know, if they don't like the job that I'm doing, Mark can come (laughs) in and he can fire me. But 
we, we have a lot of equity still invested and we see huge potential for it too. And so I think there's the one key motivation is just obviously there's the equity. And as we grow the value of the business, that helps. Another thing that I didn't expect coming into the process is that when you have somebody who invests a large sum in you, they're saying that they believe in you. And so there is a big weight that kind of comes along with that. Even though from the permanent equity side, I felt zero pressure from them. Like Mark is a very genuine, great dude. You, you could you could experience that on the podcast too. Like when you were talking with him in person, even without that pressure, you still feel this internal pressure because you've got people who believe in you and you want to make sure that you're proving them right. And so that was one key piece that I didn't expect going into it. But at the same time, is a huge motivating factor that, you know, there's the relationship side. Yeah, you can just look strictly at the financials, but there's that personal side too. All right. I have one more question for you. This is a personal one. This was on your three interesting things about you. I thought this was really cool. You said, I've been to all 50 states with my three kids. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, daughter, my daughter is four. And so she's been to all 50 states now. Okay, so how how does this work? This is this is awesome. <laughs> so originally, as we were growing the business, one of the key drivers when Matt and I started, we were still working full time at a, another job, and so we got to the point where I had just had my third kid, and so I've got two boys and a girl, and so at the time I had a one year old, actually a less than one year old, a three year old, and a five year old. And my wife and I did the math and we said, all right, our oldest, we have like two solid years before we really need to get him in school. And we we're planning to homeschool for kindergarten. And so it got to a point we had always wanted to travel. And we said, well, it's now or never. And so I quit my full-time job. <laughs> my wife, she's a labor and delivery nurse. She quit her job <laughs> right after we had our third kid. And we're going all in my business, which was a lot smaller than it looks today. Yeah, but it was just going through the worst case scenario and saying, okay, what's the worst case that can happen? And yeah, it, it, so it was kind of a interesting experience going through. It was scary. But at the same time, we had that time pressure. We said, let's go for it. So we spent the next couple of years traveling around in a camper. We still had our house up here. So yeah, working just remotely. And I would be gone for a month and come back and we traveled all around. And yeah, my youngest, she hit 48 states by the age of three. And then we just got Alaska. We spent a month in Alaska last year. So <laughs> hit, hit all 50. And it's it's those memories and experiences that, yeah, I wouldn't give away for the world. And, you know, it's the there's the financial aspects of growing a business. But then there's also the, the freedom aspects that you can experience, too. And so that's been a key driver, a key motivator. It's uh, grow the business to a point where we have the freedom to also let the business run where it doesn't need that direct interaction every day and can experience life because it uh, moves by pretty quick. Okay, then I have to ask one more follow-up. Of everywhere you went, what's like the coolest place in America that nobody ever talks about? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, so we would do a lot of remote camping. So we would just go find random spots, Bureau of Land Management, land where you can just camp for free. Man, Utah is so awesome. Like It has so many awesome spots to go, um, national parks. Uh, yeah, if you want to get out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert and hang out, like it's a great spot to go. 
Cool. All right, Joe, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you'd prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 